All right, uh, this morning we're going to continue with our study of uh, what we're calling Understanding the Times. We're going to dig into a particular text this morning. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Titus, and then we're actually going to spend most of our time on the following verses, but I wanted to capture the, the introductory verses. So please listen as I read from God's Word here, Titus 1, 1 through 8. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Our Father, as we, as we gather this morning, as we study your word, I pray that your spirit would fill this place, would fill our hearts and our minds, edify us, build us up, give us insight to your truth, to the world around us, and may we live in accordance with the truth and godliness, for we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we just recited the Lord's Prayer together. The, the first petition in that prayer, the first thing we are told to ask after we say our Father, the first thing is, hallowed be thy name. That, that's a petition, that's a request. We are asking God to make his name holy to us. That's what Jesus told us as his disciples to pray. The next line is the, the, the request, thy kingdom come. We're, we are to ask God to bring his kingdom here. What does that mean? What does that, what does that look like? The very next phrase answers, answers that question. What it looks like is that God's will would be done on earth in the same way that it is currently being done in heaven. Right now, all of the angelic beings, all those strange creatures we read about in the book of Revelation, for instance, all the saints who have gone before us, our brother Barry, they are all doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They are righteous, and they're doing what God wants them to do. His will is being done in heaven. His will is not being done to the same degree here on earth. Can I get an amen? And we are to pray and ask the Lord to bring his kingdom so that people here would obey 
God just as they are in heaven. I want to tie that truth to something we looked at last Advent season where we went through Isaiah chapter 9 and some other prophecies from Isaiah, but in particular Isaiah 9 where we heard that for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and we talked about how that son is Jesus Christ, and when he came 2,000 years ago, he was that promised son, and the government of the world was put on his shoulders, and there would be no end to the increase of his government, his dominion, and there'd be no end to the increase of peace. So Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, and he calls his disciples together and says, now all government and dominion has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine, and I'm sending you out into all the nations to make disciples of those nations. That's what we call the Great Commission. So for 2,000 years, we've been doing that. The church has been doing that. And my question is, why aren't we done yet? I mean, 2,000 years is a long time. It seems like we should have been able to make disciples of all the nations by now. What's wrong with us? Well, it's not that simple, is it? There's another kingdom. Those of you who've been in Bob's class have heard a lot about this. There's another kingdom at work. There's a kingdom of darkness who is doing everything it can to thwart the building of the kingdom of God. Now, we know in the end that kingdom loses. But in the meantime, there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of battle, and we have to just keep working to expand the kingdom of Christ and to overcome the kingdom of darkness. That's part of our job, so what we're to do. How do we do that? We preach the gospel. We also build a Christian culture. We preach the gospel so that people come to faith in Christ and then we teach them to obey all that Christ commanded and we obey and we try to change the world around us in that way so that we look more and more like Jesus as a culture as well as individuals. So that's what we've been talking about in this, uh, in this series. We've been talking about one of those ideologies from the kingdom of darkness that has set itself up against the kingdom of God and we are to take it captive and that that ideology is Marxism, cultural Marxism, uh, leftism, those kinds of things. So today I want to drill down into this section from Titus where Paul talks to this, this young pastor type in the early church and tells him to appoint elders so that elders will equip the saints to be able to engage with these false ideologies and build the church. So we left off at, at verse 8 in my reading. I want to pick up in verse 9. That work. And we were having all kinds of technical difficulties earlier, so if, that, if you don't see what it looks like you're supposed to see up there, just let me know, and I'll walk around with my iPad and show you all individually what, uh, what I want you to see. So, here is Titus 1.9. So this is continuing the instructions for elders. This is what elders are supposed to do and to be, and he says we are to hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So we have two, two key words there, the word word and the teaching. Uh, he's referring back to the word that he mentioned earlier, the word of Christ, the word of truth, the knowledge that Jesus is our savior and that Jesus is our king. And he says, as elders, we have to hold fast to cling to the truth 
and the word, the faithful word, not the words of men, not the words of scholars, not the words of pastors. We cling to the word of Jesus Christ because that is the faithful word. The teaching is the teaching of Jesus Christ. My job is simply to draw your attention to the word, not my word. So hold fast to, the, to that word, he says, so that, and he gives two, two things that will come out of holding fast to the faithful word, so that he will be able to do two things, to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now we spend a lot of time in this church, the vast majority of our time on that first one. We exhort, we call people to know, to believe, to follow sound doctrine, biblical teaching, the teaching of the gospel, and all of its implications. What we've been doing in this series is more along the second one, to refute those who contradict. This is our job as elders. It's, it's part and parcel of our job description to teach the church the errors and, con, re, re, what's the word he uses? <laughs> refute those errors, toss them out, show them, expose them for what they are. And we've been diving into this ideology that is seeking to destroy Christianity. It's important that we do that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Stop. Okay, good. Get back. Thank you, Lord. Why? Why do we have to refute those who contradict? Next verse. For there are many rebellious men Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. There are many rebellious men. This is a word that communicates, uh, it's the same word that is used for submission, where wives are to submit to husbands and all of us are to submit to authorities. These are people who refuse to submit to Christ. That's what the word means. It, it takes that word submission and puts a negation in front of it and says these rebellious men, they refuse to place themselves under the authority of King Jesus. He calls them empty talkers. They talk a lot. They speak a lot. They have lots of things to say, but it's vacuous. There's no substance there because it's not real. They don't believe it. They don't mean it. And then he calls them deceivers. Now, in his day, he, he points out at Crete, a lot of these guys are from the Jewish tradition. It says especially those of the circumcision. He means they're Jews or former Jews. They've come into the church, and they're bringing this, these lies with them. Who are the rebellious men and the empty talkers and the deceivers in our day? Can you name some? Are you willing to name some? One of the things that the left has done is they've, they, they've instituted this thing we call political correctness. You're not allowed to ever criticize anybody else. Now, they criticize people all the time. But the idea that to call someone rebellious, empty talker, deceiver, that's mean. And you're not supposed to be mean. And especially Christians, you're not, we're supposed to be nice. That is sort of the Christian virtue in the world, is Christians are supposed to be nice. 
Show me the scripture where it says we're to be nice. We're to be kind. We're to be gracious and gentle. But that's not what the world means by nice. What they mean is don't ever say anything I don't like. Paul here is not afraid to call these people out, say they're rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. We need to have eyes to see and ears to hear and look around our culture and say, are there people like that in our day? Absolutely there are. And what does Paul say about them? They must be silenced. They must be silenced. That's a strong word, that must For you Greek guys, that's day. It is absolutely necessary that we stop them from talking. Now, we can't do that in America because we have this thing called freedom of speech. So we can't just shut them up. That's, That's not what Paul means where they don't ever get to say anything. But we have to refute their errors such that they don't make any groundwork. They don't get anywhere with their lies, with their with their wickedness. That's our job as elders to equip the saints to make sure this teaching doesn't go anywhere. Certainly, we can't let it go anywhere in the church. They must be silenced. Again, that seems harsh. But Paul says the stakes are very, very high. Look at the next verse. Why? Because they, these deceivers, are upsetting whole families. This is the same word upsetting that is used of Jesus going into the temple and he sees all the money changers there as they are manipulating the currency and taking advantage of the Jewish people and Jesus goes in and he upsets all the tables. This is not a gentle word. This is not, you know, when you get upset, right? You're, you're a little bit upset. You're kind of irked. You're a little frustrated. That's not it. It's much more intense. Think of the violent o- overthrowing of the tables. These people are upsetting whole families, Paul says. Have you seen any of that? Every one of us has. Think about what has happened as the leftist, the, the cultural Marxist, ideology has made its way from just political and and sociological realms to the church. There are families in this church who maybe someone reads a book, watches a video, listens to a podcast, and they're persuaded. They're persuaded by the, the lies that traditional Christian value, that's, it's mean, it's, it's oppressive. We don't really care about the poor. We don't really care about the downtrodden. And Marxists really do. They're so compassionate, so merciful. And someone in the family catches on to that and they say, yeah, yeah, the church is really failing here. And others in the family are saying, I don't see it that way. No, I don't think we're... I don't think we're failing it. I don't think what you're listening to is a good thing. And now there's conflict. And families are being torn apart over these things. We've talked about how the, the Marxist leftism is pushing as hard and as fast as they can the whole sexual perversion agenda. We could raise hands and start bearing testimony 
of all of the families that have been turned upside down in this room right now because someone has been influenced to say, you know, I think that whole LGBTQ stuff is not so bad. And it rips us apart. We've all been impacted by those lies and deceits. If you haven't yet, you will be. It's coming. Because these people are coming for our families. It's what they want to do. They want to destroy the traditional Christian family. Mother, father, children. The authority structures they're in. The love, the nurturing, the education, all those things we've been talking about. They're after us. And Paul says to Titus, they must be silenced. We are the ones who have to silence them. In their case, he gives them the, he explains to us their motivation. They're, they're teaching things they should not teach so that they can get rich. You ever known anybody that had an agenda to disrupt Christian virtue so they can get wealthy? Yeah, it happens. It happens. Paul now quotes from one of the Cretans themselves. This is Epimenides, who lived a few hundred years prior to Paul's writing, probably around six centuries. He says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is like a Bill Maher or a Joe Rogan calling out the culture and getting it right. Some of you older folks probably don't know who those people, two people are. The younger folks know who they are. And Paul says their testimony is true. That really is who the Cretans are. And it has gotten into the church. And they're bringing this lying, evil beast, lazy gluttons into the church and they're tearing down the truth of Jesus Christ, or at least they're trying to. They have to fight it, they have to resist it, teach against it. For this reason, Paul says, reprove them severely, not gently, severely. Why? Because the truth of Christ is at stake. This is, he's not talking about people who have some disagreements over things like eschatology. Right? If we polled everybody in this room and said, what's your view of end times? We'd have a ton of disagreement. I don't agree with myself on eschatology. I certainly don't agree with Dwight. <laughs> Nor does he. <laughs> he and I switch places on this all the time. That's not quite true, but it's, it's one of those things we say, okay, let, there's a lot of diverse opinion here, and it's hard, and let's, 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 let's be gracious. This is not, the, the faith is not on the line. Christianity is not on the line. The gospel is not on the line when it comes to how it's all going to shake out at the end. So we love to banter about that and debate and, and have fun back and forth, but at the end of the day, we're still on the same side here. The, this is not a crucial issue. And there's a host of doctrines that fit into that category. 
But when an atheistic agenda comes into the church, or even an agenda that claims to be theistic comes into the church and threatens to destroy the truth to its core, the scripture requires us to reprove them severely because people's eternal destiny is at stake. You know, if I get end times wrong in my theology, great. I find out at the end I was wrong. And Dwight can celebrate. If I get the gospel wrong, I spend eternity in a lake of fire. And if we as elders allow erroneous teaching to shape our thinking where the gospel's at stake, we allow people to live under the threat of a lake of fire. Not on our watch. We can't do that. We want our people sound in the faith. He goes on to describe these false teachers. They profess to know God. See, that's the danger. This is not just people out there. They profess to know God. Do you know how many of our politicians profess to know God? A lot of them. I don't know the exact number, but a lot of them. At every level, there's still some political advantage in our day to calling yourself a Christian. So how do we know? They say, I'm a Christian just like you. Paul tells us. They say they know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. I know God. I'm a Christian just like you, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure we slaughter as many children as possible. Those are deeds that say, I don't really know God. I know God. I'm a Christian just like you, but I'm going to do everything I can to, to promote the sexual perverse agenda. Those deeds say, I don't know God. I'm a Christian just like you, I know God, but I'm going to do everything I can to replace God with the government. It's not what a Christian does. We have to watch their deeds. What do they do? What do their actions say? Anybody can say they know God. Well-trained parrot can say it knows God. But actions prove whether it's real. And Paul says, they don't know him. They deny him by their deeds, and they're, be, they're detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Those are strong words from the Apostle Paul. Why would he use such strong words? Because the gospel's at stake. The truth of Christ is at stake. We can't allow it in the church. But as for you, Paul says, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So you refute the errors, refute those that contradict, and then you build up the church in what we should be and what we should believe. So we spent a lot of time talking about what must not be the case. We're going to spend a little bit of time here this morning just talking a little bit about what we are trying to build. How do we, how do we, how do we contradict the culture 
and this whole leftist movement? Well, we've talked about one area, we vote. We don't vote those people into office at every level, federal, local. But in nine days, that voting, at least for now, comes to an end. So what else can we do? Surely there's more, right? Because voting is not even in the Bible. Yeah, there is more. So Paul then, after saying this, speak the things which are fit for sound doctrine, he begins to get very, very practical and brings us back to the simple level of who we are as men and women. So I'm going to look at these four areas. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. He says, in continuing on in chapter 2, he says about older men, teach them to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. That will stand out in this culture. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're an older man, but I'm looking at a bunch of us. I'm in that category now, I think. Older men, we are to be temperate. What does that mean? Temperate, it means we are not controlled by our passions, uh, by our desires, by our emotions. We have those things in check. It's, it's not quite stoic because stoicism is an ancient philosophy that where basically people were saying you want to have none of those things. You want to have no expression whatsoever of, of emotions and passions and des- desires. First of all, that's impossible. Secondly, it's not, it's not godly. It's not biblical. We, w- there's, there's nothing evil about emotions. The evil comes when we are controlled by emotions. There's nothing evil about desires. And passions, it's just when we let those motivate us to do bad things, that's where it's a problem. So temperateness means I'm in control of those things. I'm not driven by them, but, but the, the emotions and, and desires and passions, they come under the control of my mind. That's what it says, be temperate. Uh, steady might be a, a, a good sort of modern word. He says, be dignified. Serious. Serious. There's, a, there's an older word that we don't use. Uh-oh. Stop. Come back. That's my fault. Make it. Come back. Okay, good. Thank you. I don't know who did that, but what happened? There's an older word we don't use much anymore. Gravitas. There's an English word that you know that's similar to that. Gravity. What is gra- gravity? Gravity has... It's, we think of weight when we think of gravity. Maybe you think of a falling, but you, right? So falling. Gravitas is this serious, weighty mindset. That's what Paul says. That's what he's getting at. Dignified, noble, serious about life. That doesn't mean you, there's no joy and no lightheartedness, of it, but Christians are not called to be happy-go-lucky. Everything's great, wonderful, yep. Tool along, enjoying life. No, there's a seriousness to life. It says men be like this. Sensible is another one. Older men, let me ask you. Who do you let speak into your life? Who do you let teach you? What podcasts do you listen to? Videos, books, pastors? Are they promoting temperate mindsets? seriousness, sensible behavior? If not, be careful. Be careful. 
He goes on and says to men, be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. As, as Christ is formed in us, we're strong in our commitment to the truth. We believe it. We trust him. We love. We persevere. We're not tossed around. So on. I need to move on. Time's, I'm going to have to eat Dwight's lunch if I don't speed up. Older women, he says. Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but older women, you know who you are. Reverent. Reverent. I never noticed this until this week looking at this word. This word here used in Titus is a combination of two Greek words. One is to be fitting, and the other is the word priest. It's translated reverent. The word is saying older women have the mindset, the mentality that is fitting for a priest. And I started thinking, well, what, what, what does that mean? Why does he choose that word? Well, what's the mindset of a priest? A priest ministers in the presence of God. If you knew that in that place over there, like the holy place, the most holy place in the temple, if you knew that in that room right there, God was actually residing, the way you behaved out here would probably be impacted by knowing God is right there. Again, almost that, that gravitas, that weighty kind of, kind of idea. Careful what you say, careful what you think. That's what he uses. Uh, fitting for a priest, reverent. Not slanderers. Not going around talking and sharing things that are not true. Not talking about people when they're not present. Not enslaved to wine. It says to the older women, teach younger women. Oh, do we need that today? Well, what are they supposed to teach younger women? He goes on and explains that. To love your husbands and love your children. Now that presupposes, obviously, you have those two things. But does our culture promote older women like this and younger women loving their husbands and loving their children? No. Children are a drag on us, younger women. Go have your careers. Go live your lives. Younger women, be sensible. Be pure. Work at home. Submit to your husbands. Talk about countercultural. But that's what Paul tells Titus to tell the older women, to teach the younger women. Housewife is a Christ-honoring calling. Motherhood is a Christ-honoring calling. And remember, we've walked down this. The left wants to destroy that whole thing. It is somehow undignified and beneath women to just be a housewife and a mother. It's all a lie with the intent to destroy the Christian culture. And we are suffering the consequences of the inroads it has made. No, 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 what Christ calls us to do is to elevate being a homemaker and elevating it to a very high place. Submission to husbands. How many podcasts, YouTube videos, books do you read where this is clearly and unqualifiedly stated? 
seems like by the time we get done with all the qualifications, there's not much left of submission. Even in the Christian culture, it's a Christ-like virtue. It matters. So again, older women, younger women, I ask you, what influences are you allowing into your mind that are distracting from these things? Be very careful. Very careful. And then, for younger men, I, I find it rather amusing. He only gives one word to younger men. And I, I like, is that because he's running out of ink? Uh, is that because he thinks, well, the man will refer back to the older man stuff? Is he just thinking, oh, you know, with younger men, maybe one thing at a time is, is good, and we'll start here. With younger men, he says, be sensible. Now, he's used that, this is the third time. Sensible. Have your wits about you. Keep your head about think. It's a word that, that is built on this word, a, a word for mind and for thinking. Young men, think. Don't just react. Don't just act. I mean, at some point we have to act, but first we think. And we evaluate. We ponder and we, we, we see what's being communicated out there and say, but what does the word of Christ say? And I'm going to get solid on the word of Christ before I make my decision, before I act. And again, he gives that same instruction to older men and to younger women. There's a lot more that could be said about all these things, but this is how we counter the culture of the leftist Marxism idea. We reinvent the basic man-woman responsibilities, character traits, virtues in the family. And we can make a difference. We can stand out, we can set ourselves apart and show the world something different. And one by one, family by family, create a culture that is different from what they're trying to create. And this one can be really strong and hold together. Because we all know intuitively, and many of us know experientially, this kind of home and household is wonderful when done Christ's way. And we have things, we have community, we have comfort and security and love and cherishing and nourishing and all those things that the world can't begin to experience. I know there are some of you here that are not married that look at this and say, I would love that. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. For those of us who are married, who have homes, households, this is our ambition. This is our goal. So that the enemy doesn't win. Now there's more. There's, there's more. But this is just where Paul goes right here in Titus. We're going to finish up by reading a little bit more from Titus. And then I'm going to ask Brother Jay to come pray. Paul goes on. And he gives some other instructions, and then he calls this all back to our ultimate hope. We do this because Jesus is building his kingdom, and someday he's coming back, and he will wipe out once and for all, all the adversity. Here's what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and 
godly in the present age, looking to the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus is coming. In the meantime, he is remaking us into his image to be righteous and godly. And that's why we pursue these things. That's why we talk about these things. And when he comes, we will be perfected. It's going to be a good day. But today's a good day. Because he's begun that work in all of us. Brother Jay, would you come and pray for us?